Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you again, like to introduce the kids, but it's good to see you in the house of God. We're going through the first epistle of the Apostle John, and we are now entering the last two or three sermons probably on it. We're coming to a close in John. We're in chapter 5. And we're entering in, um, a very difficult portion of Scripture, and it's difficult. I'm going to front load it with this. It's difficult because as I read today, some of you will notice that one of the verses might not be in your Bibles versus what's on the screen, and there's a lot to say about that. This is one of those that it's hard to preach because uh, verse 7 will be in some of your Bibles, and some of your Bibles it will not be, or you'll see footnotes if you are reading along, and they'll say, this is debated scripture, and the ESV Bible that we normally use to preach does not include it. Um, that's a debate we can have if you ever want to talk after church about these things, but just front-loading you, there are three major sections of scripture that have been debated for a long time. I mean, you get to the third century AD, after the church is established, they talk about these verses as being in dispute. It's 1 John 5, 7, the story in John's gospel with the woman caught in adultery and Jesus is riding on the ground. That's debated as being authentic scripture. And then the ending of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, that's debated as authentic scripture. So some of your Bibles will have this. Some of your Bibles will not. The ESV does not contain the Trinity verse that says the three are in one. If you want to talk more about manuscript stuff after church, if you care about that, we can. But if it's different on the screen, front-loading, that's why. Um, there's a lot to say on those things. And if you've never heard of that before, it's not trying to hurt your conscience. But the why it's difficult is because when you're looking at someone and say, but it's in my Bible, and I bought it. And then someone says, but it's not in my Bible, and I bought it who's right. That's when it becomes difficult. But we're not talking about that today. Just front-loading you. It's not in the ESV, so it won't be read. Agreement? Okay. Well, that being said, if that confused anybody, not trying to confuse anybody, just so you're not be like, he's skipping a verse. What happened? That's the reason. But as we are considering this the sermon today in the text, uh, in the days when John the Apostle wrote this letter, the short letter, about 80 to 100 AD, there was a man named Serinthus, or Carinthus. I'm pretty sure it's with a soft C, but Serinthus. And Serinthus taught that Jesus of Nazareth was a man born from normal parents just like you and just like me. And his parents were Mary and Joseph. He was born of normal descent. And this, very, this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, was a very good man, a very righteous man, and he followed John the Baptist according to Serinthus. And as Jesus of Nazareth, this good man born normally, just like you and me, followed John the Baptist, he was baptized. And according to this man named Serinthus, uh, the Christ spirit fell upon Jesus and essentially God possessed this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And then he used this possessed Jesus of Nazareth to do miracles and proclaim God's kingdom. But on the cross... The Christ spirit, air quote that, right? The Christ spirit left this Jesus of Nazareth, which is why Jesus of Nazareth on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this man named Serinthus really taught this. And he was known amongst the apostles in the church. A front loaded to you, he's called a heretic. In fact, the only way we know about him is because he was in one of the earliest books called Against Heresies, written by a man named Irenaeus. And... Um, he listed this guy by name and what he taught and saying it is demonstrably wrong. But I'd have to ask you, why would someone believe this story that he's 
that he's putting out there. Why would he be, anyone believe him? Next, fast forward a couple hundred years to the rise of the Muslims, about 600 AD. I think that's not very long after the Gospels, only a couple hundred years. And it is commonly taught against the Muslims, not all, but many, that Jesus of Nazareth was a true prophet of God, a true prophet, uh, but he's not the son of God, explicitly not the son of God, and that he was not crucified. He was not crucified, but a lookalike or an imposter died on the cross that just looked like him, and everybody just thinks it was Jesus. Because in common Muslim belief, a true prophet of God cannot be killed by mortals. That would be a defeat for the Almighty God. So commonly taught against Muslims that Jesus of Nazareth, a true prophet, not the Son of God, but he was not crucified. He didn't really die on the cross. That's just, that's just a fabrication Christians made up. So I'd ask you this. We have two already different Jesuses being proposed over only a couple hundred years difference. Uh, who's right? Who's right about Jesus? How can we know who's telling the truth? And if these competing views are put on trial and they've given their testimonies about Jesus, would they have... Would these things be sustainable under scrutiny? If they called witnesses to defend their positions, would the witnesses hold up? How do we know? And this is important because in today's scripture reading, John the Apostle is bringing up this very issue. Because church, ever since the days of the apostles, up to you and me, Overbrook, Kansas, 2023, the validity of God's testimony concerning his son that he is the true son of God, that this Jesus is the true son of God, and in him we have the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. This testimony has been challenged continually in many ways, in many forms, and by many names, and many alternate explanations have been given, as we just read about this guy named Serinthus and the Muslims. But God, being true to his own law, says that on the matter of two or three witnesses, any testimony is established. God obeys his own rules. A testimony can't be confirmed without validity, without several witnesses. Therefore, God has determined three witnesses to confirm his testimony that Jesus Christ is his son, and in him we have eternal life. God wants us to believe him. And so he follows his own rules and gives us Three witnesses to corroborate his story. We will examine these three witnesses today and we will build our trust in God's testimony that this Jesus is the Son of God. God come as a man. God incarnate. However you want to explain that or word that. It's the core issue here. Is Jesus God come as a man? The Son of God. And I propose to you today, yes, he is. And God provides three witnesses. So please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in 1 John chapter 5, and we will be beginning in verse 6. Hear now the words of the living and true God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. 
For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray. Marshall Medill, would you ask for the blessing of the reading of God's word? Amen. Church, we are to trust God's testimony about his son, and not just us, but the whole world. For God has said, this is my son. This is the real deal. And we already experienced two alternative views of Jesus. And this, we talked about it a little bit, but John's letter keeps bringing these ideas up. Why are there so many competing views of Jesus? Talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's Michael the Archangel. Talk to the Mormons. He's the twin brother of the devil. And all these things you'll notice, he's never really God. The Muslims, he's not God. Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not God. Mormons, he's kind of like a happy God thing. I don't know how they explain that. But he's not really like God, God, like we would talk about. Serenthus, he's definitely calling saying Jesus is not God. Like, they're all saying the same thing. He was just a good guy or a prophet or something like that, but he's not the eternal God taken on flesh. And this keeps coming up. And God says, no, I've borne testimony. This is my son, and I give you three witnesses. And we are to trust and believe in God because if we don't, we do not have life. But if we believe the testimony that Jesus is the son of God, in him we have life. And these three witnesses, as we read, the apostle says, there are three witnesses that testify to this truth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree, meaning that, as we explain and look at these three things, they will all be saying the same thing. Yes, this Jesus of Nazareth is not just some historical figure. He wasn't just some good peasant that lived and is a good teacher in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He is the mighty son of God, God come as a man. And as we read through these witnesses, there are a few questions you need to ask yourself. Just top of my head, I wrote these down, but one, did the events that we're going to read about actually happen? I mean, that seems so simple, right? Did these things actually happen that we read about? And if you say no, you have to ask yourself why or why not? What is your reasoning for the validity of these events? Did they happen or not? Two, what amount of evidence is sufficient for you to believe God's testimony concerning his son? Because as we read, John says, you receive the testimony of men, You'll believe other people. You believe normal people about normal things, but why do you not believe God's testimony about his own son? You think God would know best, and that's what he's saying. You'll, he argues the lesser to the greater. If you'll believe people you can see, how much more should you believe the story about the eternal son of God? And lastly, what you need to ask yourself, not only did they happen, 
How much evidence do you need? But lastly, what are the consequences of ignoring the testimony and the witness of Jesus Christ? What are the consequences? So let's examine our first witness that he says, the water. The apostle said that Jesus came or was revealed by water. And this most clearly corresponds to the baptism of Jesus, which is witnessed to in all four gospels. If you want to write this down, Matthew 3, 13 to 17, Mark 1, 9 to 11, Luke 3, 21 and 22, and then John 1, 29 to 34. All four gospels validate the baptism of Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist. And this is because the baptism of Jesus was designed by the God Almighty, by the Father, to reveal to the nation of Israel, to reveal to the people of God at the time, and really all generations that come after it, that this Messiah, this chosen one, had finally come. Because John the Baptist says himself, he says, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, the Christ, might be revealed to Israel. John's baptism was to prepare the way for the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. And so, if that's true, let us read Matthew's account of Jesus being revealed by the water. This witness that this Jesus is not just some normal guy, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a prophet, but he's the very son of God. God says that this baptism of Jesus is a witness to this reality, that he's more than just a man. He's the unique son of God. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13, I'll just read it to you, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles. The scripture says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered John, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And not only that, but we have another direct quote from John the Baptist himself confirming the event. John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, talking about Jesus. I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The people thought John the Baptist was a prophet, because he was, and John the Baptist says, I came to do this ministry to reveal to the people the Messiah or the Christ, and that guy that that just happened to, that's the one. So we get the narrative, and then we get John the Baptist directly validating it. So, and friends, just imagine if you were there. Just take a moment and imagine if you were there by the Jordan River, and you saw the massive crowds coming to be baptized by John, you hear his preaching, and you're like, man, this is a true prophet. We haven't had a prophet in 400 years, and God showed up now through this prophet, and he's telling us to repent and believe, and someone greater is coming. And then you see this Jesus get baptized, and you see a spectral dove land on Jesus, whatever that looked like. You see this dove thing land on Jesus, enter into him, and then you hear a voice from heaven say, this is my boy. Listen to him. 
what would you do? Would you just be like, man, what a crazy coincidence. What a crazy coincidence. You go home from, from John's revival meeting and you go home from the Jordan, you're like, man, honey, this was crazy thing happened. There was this voice from heaven and God spoke, but I forgot the guy's name already, whatever, right? And you just move on. It's like, what? God spoke from heaven? This is my son? You think that would be done deal, like case in point. But as we know the gospel stories, many did not follow Jesus. Though they experienced it. Now someone might rightfully say, you know, no one living today was there to see it. I don't believe that nonsense. We're just relying on some uh, secondhand account of someone else to tell us that this stuff happened. I say that is correct. That's, That's exactly right. We're relying on firsthand witness. We're relying on the documentation of a group of men called the apostles. First-hand witnesses to these things. And, it's, and guys, this has always been the case. The testimony of Jesus has always rested on the apostles. It always has. Because imagine this. Even before the ink dried on the page of the New Testament, the church and the preaching of the gospel was happening. Before the New Testament was written, they were going across the Roman world testifying to this Jesus, telling the stories about his baptism, his miracles, all that stuff, his resurrection, all the stuff we're talking about today. Before scripture was written, they were telling people this story. And it just happened within their lifetime. So to say that because it's someone else's written event of it and it's not valid is not true. And as we talked about a little bit, if you were in a court scene, You receive the testimony of men. You'll believe them and their stories about whatever it is. Maybe you're in court for a jury trial. Why why are the gospels disqualified from being primary evidence of these things? Things to think about. But the apostles are so significant to us and these gospel stories and these letters is because to be an apostle by definition means you had to be an eyewitness of these things. So when they replaced Judas, when he betrayed Christ and they had to replace his office, hear hear what Peter says, to be an eyewitness of this, to be a preacher of the gospel, to be an apostle and establish the church. Peter says this, the criteria to being an eyewitness, to testify to these things. He says, Acts 1, 21 and 22, Peter said, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us into heaven, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So yes, we rely on the testimony of eyewitness events of what happened. That doesn't mean, just because you weren't there to experience it yourself, doesn't mean that the Bible should be excluded from eyewitness testimony. It's valid. And if you receive testimony from men, how much more should you receive the testimony from God himself? And so the baptism of Christ preached amongst by the apostles is the first witness or event that God says is witness to the reality that this Jesus is my son, his baptism. Because God spoke from heaven and the dove landed on him. The spirit filled him. Witness one, do you accept this testimony? Did this really happen or did it not? And if it didn't, why not? How do you know it didn't happen? And if it did happen, what are the implications of that? This is my son. What do you do with that? Is God telling the truth? Witness to the blood. The second witness is the blood, which corresponds to the crucifixion of Christ. 
It's also attested to in all four gospel accounts and really the whole New Testament. It's about the crucifixion and resurrection. Matthew 27 and 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23 and 24, John 19 and 20. All four gospels testify to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to stick with Matthew's account, but God says, like baptism, Jesus' baptism, John in his little letter, God speaking, says, the blood or the crucifixion testify that this is the Son of God. It's valid testimony. So let's read the crucifixion account. Matthew 27, 45 through 46, and then I'm going to jump down to 51. The gospel says, now from the sixth hour, which is about noon, they'd already crucified Jesus at this point. He's been on the cross for about three hours by now. So starting about noon, around lunchtime, it says, darkness fell over all the land, over all the earth until about the ninth hour, about three o'clock. Could you imagine, just before we even get to the imagination part, could you imagine darkness, the sun just fading? It doesn't say eclipse, it says the sun lost its light. That'd be terrifying, we'll get to that. And it says about the ninth hour, so three hours there's darkness, and it says about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. And then it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs were also split open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. And when the centurion, this Roman army officer is there, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, the guys that crucified him, he saw the earthquake and what took place, it says. And it says they were filled with awe and fear. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. And then in John's gospel, we have a, another event that happens. It talks about how uh, they want to they kill Jesus faster. So they want to break all their legs. And there's a technical reason why you break the legs of people on a cross so they die faster. So the soldiers come out to break all these legs so they suffocate faster on the cross. And when they get to Jesus, it says in John's gospel, they find him dead already. Which you can live up to like a week or two, depending if you had fed, but you can live for many, many days hanging on a cross. It's awful and miserable death. So when they get to Jesus and it's only been about six or seven hours, it's like, wow, he's already dead. And then just to make sure he's dead, what does John say they do to him? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out the side of Christ. Like, he is dead, dead. There's, there's, John's like, it was there. And then he says, verse 35 in John's gospel, in chapter 20, it says, He who saw it, the spearing of the side of Jesus, has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. I mean, John is saying, I was there. The, it turned black. Jesus cried out. They came to make sure he was dead, and they thrust a spear in his side. And I'm telling you guys, paraphrasing for John, this Jesus was dead on a cross. There's no dispute about it. He's dead, dead. I saw it with my eyes. Jesus gets speared. He's dead. And so, again, we're not trying to pick on Muslims, but what do we do with that, right? They'll say he didn't die on a cross. The, the Bible says he does. Who's right? How do you deal with that? How can one say one and one say the other? These are conflicting testimonies of the Son of God. And now back to our imagination game. Imagine if you were there at the crucifixion of Jesus, what it would be like to see 
literally, the sun black out, whatever that was like. And then, how in that darkness, hours pass, you can't see, you don't know what's going on. You're like, this, I'm not superstitious, but when the sun goes out, that should be an alarm to anybody, right? That should be a big deal. And then hours pass, and then out of the darkness, you hear this guy on the cross yell, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's an earthquake. How terrifying would that would be? Imagine if you were there. Would you be like the centurion who said, this was the Son of God? Or would you go home when the sun restored itself, and you say, honey, man, there was a crazy day at work. We crucified this guy, and... Somehow the sun turned out. I don't know what's going on with that. And then there was an earthquake. But what a crazy coincidence. Is that what you would do? Because that's what we're saying people do, right? When we ignore the testimony of God that this is his son. It's like the creation itself was screaming that the creator is being murdered on a cross. And we can go home and eat dinner and be like, what a crazy day. What a crazy string of coincidences. Is that... Is that how we should receive God's testimony? So do you accept these wit- this witness, the blood, the crucifixion? Did it really happen? Did it happen as it was portrayed? Was there really, did the sun really darken? Was there really an earthquake? That type of thing? Or is this just fairy tale? So did it happen? Why or why not? And if it did, what conclusion can we come to about this Jesus? And so moving on to our third and final witness, the Spirit. The last, the last witness to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And this comes in two parts. First, we want to talk about the Spirit's role in resurrecting Christ from the dead. Paul the Apostle says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the Spirit is God's ultimate witness that this Jesus really is the Son of God. And the opening letters to the Romans, hear how Paul describes, like this, this is what he's all about. He goes, and because of this, this is why the apostles do what they do. So the opening of Romans, the first few verses of Romans says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and here's the the kicker, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says this Jesus is raising from the dead by the Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness that this Jesus really is God come as a man. He's God incarnate. He's the son of God. It's the ultimate witness. Because imagine when the powers of this world that be kill a man and he comes back from the dead, never to die again. You think he's worth listening to. And the resurrection is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 and 21. They all have the resurrection. They don't leave Jesus in the grave. It's not some fiction. And one of the more famous scenes is found in John 20, 24. With the Apostle Thomas, Jesus had already come back to life. He'd appeared to the other apostles, but the Apostle Thomas had not seen him yet. And, uh, you know, they said, Thomas, we saw him. And he's like, I don't believe you. He says, until I see this Jesus, my Lord, and until 
I touch the nail prints in his hands, and until I touch the hole in his side from that spear, I will not believe. And Jesus, very graciously, grants his request. He shows up to Thomas. It says after eight days after this happens, they're, they're back together again. And Thomas, it says, is now with them. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you all. And then he says to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand here and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas answered him, the great confession. He calls him my Lord and my God. He affirms that Jesus is the Son of God. God come as a man. And Jesus says to that, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed, which is all y'all, including me. For 2,000 years, it's been the same, right? No one in this room has seen Jesus. So why do we believe the testimony about him? Why? Because there's no other conclusion we can come to, right? Jesus really came back from the dead. And if he didn't, and you say he didn't, you've got to ask yourself, why do you not believe that? How many witnesses do you need? How many gospel stories need to be there? How many recorded evidences? Like, what will it take? What will it take that Jesus came back from the dead? What will it take for you to believe that? But there's also a second aspect to this Holy Spirit witness. And it's the one that I think we can all partake in now because none of us were there to see it, but we believe it. But we have now the second aspect to this witness, the personal testimony of everyone who has ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ receiving the Holy Spirit in them. John says in his short letter, what we just read, he goes, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself concerning the Son of God. Like You believe this stuff. And guys, when a person believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in their hearts, in their minds, and in their bodies. And when that happens, that individual begins to change. You begin to change. You start to think and act differently because the Scripture says things like, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You change when the Spirit of God comes into you. You're being changed to think and act and believe like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of those, it's cliche, but it's true. And the reason it's true is because it's true. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you change. Things like, we say things like, I was, once was blind, but now I see. Uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once loved evil, but now I hate it. I once was a miserable sinner, but now I'm a saint of the living and true God. And we sing songs about amazing grace that can save wretches like me. I hate the things I used to do. I hate the sin I used to have. And I love righteousness now. And I'm I'm on a different course. And if, if you're in Christ, you're like, yes, I can't fully explain it, but I know what you're talking about. I'm not who I used to be. It's because that's the work of the Spirit. That's the testimony of the Spirit. Scripture also says that in our, in our hearts, the Spirit speaks to us saying, you know, we are the children of God. It's like one of those really subjective elements, but when you're in Christ, you know, you've been baptized into Christ and you're living the Christian life, like you know that you know that Jesus is Lord. And you can't explain it other than that. It might not sound super uh, great witness, but the life changed is a great testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. When people know who you used to be versus who you are now after being a Christian, that's why they'll say like, man, you're different. You don't hang out with us anymore. Why, what's, what's so different about you? And the answer is like, 
Jesus. Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. It's cliche, but it's true. The spirit is the witness in our lives and our hearts that we're different. You're different. You're not an addict anymore. You're not a pervert anymore. You're not a sexual idolater anymore. You're not faithless anymore. You're not a liar anymore. You're in Christ Jesus now, and Christ has set you on a new path. And you hate evil and you love righteousness. We're not saying we don't struggle with sin, but you're different. And you know it. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God and been baptized into Christ and all that christian stuff we're talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And for many of you this morning, this is true. All the stuff we're talking about this morning is true. You're like, Adam, I believe all this stuff. This is not an issue in my life. And I say to that, praise God. You believe God's testimony about his son and you have eternal life. But the reason why scripture like this is important is not just to convince unbelievers, it's to protect you, those in Christ, from falling away. Why is it that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have a good track record of robbing sheep from the pen? Why is it that people convert to Islam from being Christian? Or they say, like, I used to be Christian, stuff like that. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Or maybe it's none of those other beliefs. Maybe they just fall away and be like, I just don't believe that stuff anymore. Why do people fall away? Because they don't believe God's testimony. They don't believe that Jesus' baptism really claims he's the son of God, that God spoke. They don't really believe that on the cross, the earth shook, the sun darkened. They don't believe that stuff. They don't believe he came back from the dead. So today, if that's you and you're in Christ, you know, like, use this as what I would like to call holy inoculation. It's like, it's to prevent you from doubt. Because when you hear the crazy in this life, y'all, which you'll hear the crazy, there's always some documentary on the History Channel about the real Jesus, right? It's always there. There's always some crazy person in workplace that always talks about, well, the real Jesus, you know, or the Jehovah's Witness come knocking or the Mormons or whatever. It's like, you got to ask yourself, hey, when Jesus was baptized, did God speak from heaven? This is my son. When Jesus died on the cross, did this happen? Did he come back to life? Is he the powerful son of God, as Paul said, that the resurrection proves? And in him, we have eternal life. I am changed. I know it. God gives us these witnesses to strengthen our faith because when crazy hits our lives, which it will, whether that's because you sin or outside influences or whatever, we need to have the ground to stand on. And that ground, that rock, is Jesus Christ baptized, crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, and you filled with the Holy Spirit. So God gives us witnesses. Deception is real. There are evil powers working against the church 24-7 to get you to follow a different Jesus. And off the top of my head, but if you ever read the book of Galatians, when Paul writes to this little church, he goes, only within like a paragraph, he says, I marvel that you so quickly follow a different gospel. And this is a church that he founded to our knowledge. So if he can be upset that a church he's writing to is already following a different gospel, let it be known that heresy and false lies and truths and all that false truths happen in the church. It does. And we need the truth as a safeguard to protect us and trust God's witnesses on this son of God in whom we have eternal life. And for all of you this morning that you're doubting the Lord Jesus, you've, you're around this Christian stuff long enough, you've maybe come to church a long time, or maybe you're online or whatever, and you're like, I'm not sure about this. Is, is the issue really that it's, it's a historical reason? Do you really have a problem, like, doubting that Jesus was a real person? Like, because very few people doubt he was a real, per, real person. Very few people doubt John the Baptist was real. Very few people doubt these actually things happen. They just 
They just have to say no to it. And when you really push the button on why are you saying this no to this stuff, the ultimate issue is this. If this is true, Jesus has a claim to my life and I don't want him in charge. I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live how I want to live. It's not because these aren't historical realities, you know, that Jesus now is a real carpenter. That's not the issue. It's an issue of who's going to be the Lord of your life. Either you will be or the Lord God will be. So this issue about belief, it's very rarely an issue of history. It's an issue of, will you bow the knee to Jesus and receive life? Or will you love your sin and call God a liar and live the way you want to live and do what you want to do to your destruction's end? Because God in his grace and his love for you has says, this is my son, listen to him. And in him, you can have life. You can really live and you can be with me forever. You will either accept that offer and say, this Jesus is who he says he is, or you will continue to be the God of your life. And like all idols, all idols get destroyed in the end, if you know the end of the Bible story. But God's love for you is that your heart would be raptured for love of the Son of God, that you would see those wounds in his hands, that you would see that pierced side, and you would say this, was for my redemption. This was for me. This was for all who called upon the name of the Lord. This is life. And as Jesus lives, I will live. Will you do that today? Or will you live in the hardness of your heart and say this Christian stuff is just for fools? You have to decide. Is Jesus who he says he is, not because of what you believe, but because of what reality is? Did God really speak from heaven? This is my son. Did he really die on the cross? Did the sun really blacken? Did the earth shake? Did the tomb split open? Did he come back from the dead? Did he reveal himself to over 500 brethren at one time? The scripture says, did this really happen? And if it did, what are you gonna do about it? You either accept the testimony of God or you will perish. But will you receive God's generous offer today to live? Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you as your people and I pray that you would help us have more faith. Build us up in the truth, Lord. Help us not trust our own hearts on these things, but trust the scriptures, trust the word of God. These things really happened and you, Jesus, really are God come in the flesh. You really are the son of God. You really are our salvation. You really died for sins and rose from the dead and promised eternal life to all those who will cling to you. And that's why we're baptized. That's why we take communion every week. That's why we do these things because they are testimony to the truth of who you are, Jesus. You are the son of God and in you is life eternal. And I pray, Lord, that you would help anybody here this morning that's calling you a liar. I pray, Lord, that you would help them overcome their unbelief, help us overcome our unbelief, Help us love you more as you deserve and love one another as you command. Meet us where we're at this morning, Lord. Do great things for your namesake, we pray. Amen. The altar will be open. If you need, whether it's salvation prayers or not, if you, wanna, if you need prayers in your life, you're like, Adam, my faith is hurting because I'm going through stuff. If you need pastoral prayer, any business you need to do with God, please come. Or you can pray in your seat. If you know someone who's lost this morning, which everybody in this room I'm sure does, please pray for that person.
whatever name pops in your head now, pray for that person. The prayers of the saints matter. God hears them. Let's spend time with the Lord.